<clears throat> Over the next three months, uh, we'll be journeying through uh, this book of the Bible. Um, I'll be opening this series this week and, ne- and next week. Um, after that, I am going to be uh, on sabbatical. Uh, you won't see me for 10 Sundays, so I will return on Easter Sunday. So I look forward to that. Um, during that time, you'll have uh, several different people teaching, uh, some from inside the congregation and some coming from outside the congregation. I believe the, fa- the, the first week will be gone. My father-in-law will be up uh, continuing the book of Ephesians. So just allow me a really quick challenge um, it could be, it's really a challenge for uh, all of us for all time, but I just think specifically while I'm away, I wanted to challenge you to encourage one another um, with your presence and involvement in the church. Um, it's so easy to forget what our individual presence and engagement uh, means to those who are around us and how it builds up those who are around us. And really, scripturally, we have an obligation to one another. I know sometimes we don't like that word, but we have a spiritual obligation to be faithful to one another, to be loving one another, to be accountable to one another, to be sharing our gifts with one another. Uh, So I just encourage you to take that role seriously. And I believe that that as you're faithful and active within this Christian community, you're going to be blessed. Um, You're going to be enriched, and you're going to enrich the lives of others. Uh, so I just want just to encourage kind of with a call to faithfulness. So Ephesians. Uh, we're going we're gonna to intro the book of Ephesians this morning. Um, it's uh, the, what we call the book of Ephesians is really a letter. Uh, it's often called an epistle. And we're gonna, we can just kind of get a little bit of the framework of this letter. And we'll spend um, probably at least half our time this morning just framing this out. Um, And we'll start by reading the first two verses. And in the beginning of Ephesians, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is the author of this letter? Paul, right? So uh, modern scholars love to debate such matters, and you can find plenty of reading kind of questioning Pauline authorship. Um, But the reality is is that the author of this letter has been widely accepted throughout history as being the work of the Apostle Paul, who was once an enemy of the gospel and now finds himself as an ambassador of the gospel specifically to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentiles. Uh, It's commonly dated around A.D. 61, um, written by Paul while he was a prisoner, while he was a prisoner in Rome, and he refers to that uh, at times during the letter. Paul refers to himself as an apostle, which literally means, if you could read, which literally means what? Sent one. Uh, It's a sent one. It's, It's an ambassador. Um, John Stott, who I'll quote a couple times, I love John Stott's writing, Uh, John Stott says that this is someone designated, uh, somebody specially chosen, called, and sent to teach with authority. The idea is that they are sent with the authority of the person that is sending them. Apostle, as we know it in Scripture, capital A, 
um, had to be so chosen, called, and sent by Jesus Christ himself. And if you know the story of Paul, Paul was uh, on the road to Damascus, although he calls himself an apostle as if he was abnormally born. Um, so Paul, and Paul sees his position, we see, he says, by the will of God. He sees this position as an apostle. He sees his commissioning not as his own work, not as his own doing, but it's all according and through the will of God. So this being true, we have to take Ephesians as we do the rest of Scripture, not simply as the thoughts and opinions of the author. Uh, that, that, you know, some people think that's a trendy idea to just go, oh, well, Paul's just kind of telling us how he feels. I can take it or leave it, you know. No, that, that's not how Scripture paints itself. Paul is sent um, by Jesus Christ. And as we look at Ephesians, we have to understand that it's derived and written as the word of God. All, all Scripture being God-breathed, carrying the authority of Christ himself. Well, so when Paul says he's an apostle and he's writing, he's writing with the authority of Jesus. And that's the way we need to receive it. Charles Hodge once wrote the epistle. I just think this is beautiful how he puts it. He says the epistle itself, the, the epistle reveals itself as the work of the Holy Ghost, as clearly as the stars declare their maker to be God. So the author is Paul, but he writes with the authority of Jesus by the guiding of the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Spirit of God. The audience is who? Right? The Ephesian church, it says, to the saints, to the saints, um, literally meaning holy ones, or, or that idea of being holy is to be set apart, so we could say set apart ones in Ephesus. Uh, these saints, you know, some people have this idea that saints are kind of this elite class of Christian, right? So there's a handful of saints, and I probably never could uh, hope to attain to being a saint. That's really not a biblical concept. The idea is that saints are not an elite class of outstanding Christians, but rather they're every Christian. They are, from the least to the greatest, all made holy and set apart as recipients and ministers of God's salvation. Amen? So if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you are a saint. You are a holy one set apart for the work and ministry of God's salvation. They're called faithful in Christ Jesus. It's a great reputation to have uh, that they have been faithful and remain true to their profession. So with a few exceptions, I just want to camp out here just for a minute. With a few exceptions, the bulk of the epistles are written to church communities. The bulk of the epistles are written to church communities. Uh, listen to what John Stott says, and, and what I love is that he wrote this in like the 70s. And, and hear, hear it out and see if it's applicable today. He says this in his author's preface on his commentary on Ephesians. He says, one of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ died for us to 
redeem us from all iniquity rather than to purify us for himself, a people of his own. We think of ourselves more as Christians than we do churchmen, and our message is more good news of new life than of a new society. Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. For Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in the place of death, by unity and reconciliation in the place of division and alienation, by the wholesome standards of righteousness in the place of the corruption of wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, and by the unremitting conflict with evil in place of a flabby compromise with it. So it's all too easy for our our extreme individualistic culture, and, and and I've said that many times, it's just the reality that our culture in the world and history is on the extreme end of, of the uh, spectrum of community versus individualism. So in, it's so easy in this extreme individualistic culture to emphasize within the church individual spirituality to the point that it overshadows the fact that God is building not just individual Christians, which he is, but his church. And it's within this context of, of the new, what John Stott likes to call the new salvation community, that as opposed to the isolation of individualism, that we are meant to find the fullest expression of worship, of spiritual growth, of meaningful fellowship, and of impactful mission to the world. Um, I'll never forget the question of a grief-stricken father uh, that, that really, many years ago this was, actually when I was a teenager, that really drove home to me the essential centrality that the church must play in the lives of believers. It came from a a man that um, I knew in New Jersey. He was full of joy, full of life. One of these guys that his joy was just contagious. He was always laughing, always smiling. Uh, He had a relatively big family. He was a a family man. He was actually a doctor and a a no-compromise Jesus lover. Um, His name was, I'll just call him Dr. Joe. Uh, There was a horrible day in in Joe's life. Um, One of Joe's sons who struggled um, deeply with mental illness, and I believe it was just after they had taken a walk together, went to the house, and uh, he took his own life. Um, Horrible, horrible situation for any parent. And... um, what, what, what struck me is that <clears throat> I was told the story, relayed the story, that that Sunday, Dr. Joe w- went to church. And, and it was a, a, a church that knew him intimately and he shared life with. And the el- an elder went up to him and said, Joe, no one, no one expected you to be here today. Well, why have you come you're, you're, in, you're just in the, in the middle of this tragic, tragic situation. Why are you here? And Joe simply asked with a rhetorical question, where else would I go? 
Where else would I go? You know, the church just certainly gets, catches a lot of flack. <laughs> and and, and at, some, it's, at some level, we'd say rightfully so, because we're all guilty of the mess that we're a part of, even within the church. But it's still through this broken and flawed community that God is proclaiming his good news to the world. And, and it's, it's still through this dysfunctional spiritual family that Jesus is wrapping his arms around the desolate, around the lonely, around the hopeless, around the repentant, around the brokenhearted, and giving them a home. This specific letter, written by Paul, was written to a church community found in, in a very influential city uh, at the time, a very influential trade city uh, called Ephesus. It's on, it's on the, the western coast of what we know as modern-day Turkey. Uh, though this letter was likely, um, uh, it's, it's pretty widely accepted that this letter was what they call a circular letter, that it was probably passed around to many Asian churches and meant to be read broadly. Now, the Ephesian church would have been a mixed group. It would have been a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, but in a predominantly Gentile culture. Uh, that city is actually um, had a really strong cultic influence with their worship um, of Artemis, the, the goddess of fertility. And you, you can, you can kind of read up. Um, it was established through Paul's first, uh, second and third missionary journeys. He spent a, a short amount of time there in his second missionary journey, um, and a very extended time there in his third. And you can read that history in Acts 18 through 20. During his second trip, Paul spent over three years with this church. So, so it was a long time to have Paul around. And, and you, really, you really get this sense that they had an incredibly intimate bond. Uh, in, in fact, at the, end of, at the end of Acts chapter 20, and it's really worth reading... Paul gives a, for, a farewell to the Ephesian leaders. And he tells them that in this lifetime, they will never see him again. Paul, Paul knew that. He, knew, he seemed to know that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says that, and I think this is very telling how they respond. It says they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. So you get this picture of them crying, praying with, kissing, hugging the Apostle Paul at the end of Acts chapter 20. And that was his relationship with the Ephesian church. So if you ever think of Paul as some uh, really aloof academic, you really need to read Acts chapter 20 uh, because he was dearly loved uh, by these people. But of course, this letter is not just written for the Ephesian church. Um, it, it is... It, God had much far, more far-reaching plans as we see it as God's scripture, meaning that it still speaks to us today, passed on to all churches, to all of God's people throughout the ages, even these many centuries later. Paul greets, um, greets these people in a, in a typical way for Paul. He, he extends to them grace and peace. Um, but this wasn't just kind of a thoughtless, generic greeting. It, it, it's what Paul saw as the very real experiences of the Christians he was writing. The grace of God. The unmerited favor of God. That 
brings, that brings the peace we have with God through lo his love and salvation brought on the cross through Jesus Christ. And then a peace that should translate to a peace we have one to another. So what was the purpose of the letter? Uh, Ephesians is pretty um, unique. Uh, many, many epistles, as you read through the New Testament, many epistles are written with kind of a, a tone of correction. Now, there's always encouragement. There's always teaching. But usually the occasion is that there's some heresy, there's some major conflict, and Paul needs to address it or one of the other apostles need to address it. You don't get that sense in Ephesians. And Ephesians kind of stands as an exception in that way. Uh, generally, Ephesians is a letter of encouragement. Uh, but we could also say that it's a letter of discipleship. It's rich in Christian doctrine and a call toward Christ-like conduct. If, if we're to pinpoint an overriding theme of Ephesians, uh, we could say, and, and this is from a commentary that uh, I read through, it just very simply put that the overriding theme was the nature and the purpose of the church. And I like what the author Francis uh, Flokes wrote. He says, it's like a sermon on the greatest and widest theme possible for a Christian sermon. The eternal purpose of God, which he is fulfilling through his son, Jesus Christ, and working it out in and through his church. So let's just for our remaining few minutes, we'll read the next four verses, um, which is a travesty to just say uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go over in the next few minutes. Um, it, it's, it's something that I have this old Thompson Chain Reference Bible that I got when I was like eight for Easter. Uh, something that my old Thompson Chain Reference Bible calls, and I like this, the divine origin, the divine origin of God's plan of salvation. Now, I've preached on these themes many times, but, but these themes are crucial to our understanding, our identity, in Christ. And we're just going to read verses 3 through 6, and then next week we'll pick up uh, through verse 14. Starting at verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So, some of this might be familiar to you. We taught through Ephesians a couple of years ago here at, at uh, Oregon Hill Grace Chapel. Um, and you might remember that what's amazing about verses 3 through 14 is that it is, in, in the original Greek, it is one sentence. Verses 3 through 14, in fact, I read in, in the writings of antiquity, it's the longest Greek sentence that can be found. It's one long sentence sentence that Paul builds praise after praise, thought after glorious thought. William Hendrickson uh, says it's like a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. 
And, and it's certainly, it's magnificent in its Christian theology, um, but it's also an expression. It really needs to be looked at and framed in this expression, this, this, we could say this enthusiastic eruption of praise. Paul's praise is given with a specific theme in mind. And he says it right off the bat, that God has blessed us, has blessed the saints, those who have trusted in Jesus, in the heavenly realms, in the, in the realms that, that are unseen, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we could say very simply that inclusion with Jesus brings astounding privileges. Inclusion with Jesus brings astounding privileges. Um, right now, I, uh, I belong to a specific small group in our church. And this small group will be having our annual Christmas party tonight at Mary Kay's house. So I don't know if you've ever been to a party at Mary Kay's house, but it's always something special. So I look forward to this party every year. Uh, she, she gets the choicest of meat. Sorry if you're a vegetarian. She gets the choicest of meat. Um, all these sides are brought, all these desserts. We do a gift exchange. There's always a lot of, uh, a lot of laughter, a lot of fun. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful night. And did I mention the food is really, really good? So, Myron, amen. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. Um, so I get the privilege of experiencing this because this is the small group that I have presently been included in. Now, that's no slight to any other small groups in the church. I hope you have good Christmas parties. If you don't, we can take some notes. We can talk to Mary Kay. But I, I, I am a part of, I am included in this small group. And then that means I get to get included in this, part, in this party and all the privileges and joys that come with it. Privileges come with inclusion. And nothing equals being included in Christ. Nothing equals that. For one, inclusion in Christ points to the fact that God has chosen you. In theological terms, this is referred to as election, or maybe more broadly thinking of the sovereignty of God as predestination. Uh, the basic premise being that God's work of salvation in our lives did not begin with our seeking or our response toward him. But rather, it is completely God's initiative, Paul says, in accordance to his pleasure and will, to choose us to be his objects of mercy before the world was even created. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. He says, salvation is from our side a choice. From the divine side, it is a seizing upon, an apprehending, a conquest of the Most High God. Our accepting and willing are reactions rather than actions. The right of determination must always remain with God. And the paraphrase, uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message puts it beautifully. It says, long, ago, long before he had laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Now the reality is the scope of what is said here is beyond fully telling. 
It's as spectacular as it is confounding. Especially when we consider that we're speaking of a God who stands outside time. How does, how does this all work out? A God that is timeless, that creation and now, he steps, we think of a straight line, he's outside of all that. So because of such realities, we need to always approach such truths, not with kind of a know-it-all arrogance, but rather a humble awe. Again, Francis Folk says, election is not set in opposition to the self-evident fact of human free will. It involves a paradox that the New Testament does not seek to resolve and that our finite minds cannot fathom. John Stott again says, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election, and we should be wary of any who try and systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely... And I think this is a very honest and humble statement, especially from a theologian like John Stott. He says, it's not likely that we should, shall discover a simple solution to a problem that has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. So we shouldn't approach it with a know-it-all arrogance. Well, I got this one down pat. But with a humble awe. But with that said, we must not, we must not be afraid of trusting it. We must not be afraid of relying on it, of putting our faith in it, even if the magnificent breadth of it is beyond our limited understanding. John Calvin said, although we cannot conceive, either the, by argument or reason, how God has elected us before the creation of the world, yet we know it by his declaring it to us, and experience itself vouches for its sufficiency, when we are enlightened in the faith. Note that God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Holy and blameless. Who here is holy and blameless? <laughs> who, who can stand before God and say, I'm holy and blameless? Well, here's the reality. In Christ, you can. Holy and blameless was not your natural state. You were unholy, sinful, full of blame, worthy of judgment. But in Christ, unified with Christ, included in Christ, you are found putting on his righteousness, holy and blameless. And then the call of the Holy Spirit the call of the scriptures is that we would begin to live a life that is transformed into that identity, that lives in accordance with our newfound status in Christ. So Christians should never be arrogant. Christians should never be puffed up and proud. Quite the contrary. We should be those of utter humility. As 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. What did he choose? He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why? so that no one may boast before him.
We should be able to relate to Israel, who, who God said in Deuteronomy, I didn't, I didn't choose you because you were so big and so great and so strong, but I chose you because you're a puny. That was Randy's paraphrase, okay? Chose you because you're a puny and weak, and I've set my affection upon you. That is who we are in Christ. Now, the doctrine of election in no way dispels the fact and scripture is very honest and very clear about this. In no way dispels the fact that we have to freely respond to God. That we have to, that we have to make a decision, if you will, to receive him. To put our faith in Jesus. To call out all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. To call out to him in repentance and faith. It in no way dispels our responsibility to share the gospel to share the grace that has been given to us. But instead, it gives us this glorious glimpse of what we can kind of say of this pre-creation eternity and shows us that far before we freely chose him, God freely chose us. And then at some point in space and time, we responded to that irresistible grace. What a marvelous thought. This choosing is realized, finally, or we could say fully comes to fruition through our spiritual adoption. Being made children of God, sons and daughters. When scripture says sons, it would include both the male and the female, sons and daughters of God. And therefore, having all the rights and privileges of that status forever. In that day, if you were adopted, even in that time, in that place, in that culture, in the Roman culture, an adopted son or daughter had just as, much, just as many rights as a natural born child. This is why John marvels in John 1.12, to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I had a discussion with Chad Bowditch. Some of you know Chad. He was visiting over the holidays. Uh, I don't know why. No, I'm only kidding. He's dating one of my daughters. And had a discussion with Chad Bowditch uh, about the, the, you know, he was just talking about how amazing it is that God wants to restore to us the sweet fellowship that was lost uh, in the Garden of Eden. That God wants to restore that kind of uh, communal experience with him, that we can walk with him and talk with him and know him and have that sweet fellowship with him. But in reality, that statement is true, but it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough. It's not just the renewal of Eden that Jesus has accomplished. It's far more than Adam and Eve ever experienced. It's the fact that we now can call God our Abba Father, our daddy, and that we are heirs of a kingdom, co-heirs with Christ, the true son of God. That's far more than Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Why did he do this? The two words that end, uh, that end the end of verse 4 sums it up, in love. In love he predestined us. There's no, there's no other explanation for this. Not that we are lovable, 
Uh, I, I believe Charles Spurgeon once said, if, if, God, didn't, if God didn't choose me uh, in, in time past, he certainly wouldn't choose me today. <laughs> right? It's not that we are lovable, but it, it's that God is love. It is the essence of who he is, and he has chosen to set his affection on us. The Apostle John again says in his first letter, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And then he says, and obviously we need to hear it, he says with an exclamation point, and that is what we are. And that is what we are. Oh, but wait a minute, Randy. Man, you know, I know I call myself a follower of Christ, but I struggle so much. And you don't, even just yesterday, you know, I didn't, I haven't had my devotions for a week. And you don't know what I looked at and what I did. And I've been struggling with alcohol. And I, I had been sober for two months. And man, I had a drink the other night. And you don't know. Hey, listen, are you in Christ? Then you're a child of God. And that is what you are. Now, does he want you to live up to that identity? Of course, because he wants what's best for you. He cares for you that much. But I screwed up. I did this and that. If you are in Christ, you are a son and a daughter of the king. Amen? And that is what you are. That is your identity. If you haven't been included in Christ, you can be. That is the beauty of it that we do have a free will to call out to the Lord, to surrender ourselves to him in repentance and faith and accept what Jesus has done on the cross and out of the grave. And so we have the foundation for what follows. The Apostle Paul writing to God's new salvation community, beginning with the divine origin of that salvation, determined by God before a single grain of sand was created, before an insect crawled on the earth, before a bird took flight, determined by God to set his affection upon us, realized by giving us the full rights of sons and daughters, all, as Paul says it, to the praise of his glorious grace. And the idea seems there that we would have a life of praise, that all of the reality that we experience in God's salvation would cause us to praise and praise and praise like this ongoing doxology, a snowball rolling downhill, gaining size, gaining momentum, that our lives would reflect such praise. But all of this came at a cost. And I'll just read, and next week we'll, we'll continue on, and I'll invite Steve up to lead us in communion. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption. How? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Steve.